and friends. All right. For those of you who got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. Luke 10 is where we're going to be this morning. Luke 10. Uh, if you did not bring a Bible, there's a blue one underneath the seat you're sitting in. You can reach down there. Uh, underneath your seat, there's a blue Bible. Luke 10 is on page uh, 962, 963. 962, 963. Uh, you'll find Luke 10, page 962 and 963. Um, we've been in this series uh, for the past three weeks called The Path of Flourishing, right? Our goal, our mission at Flourishing Grace Church is to lead people into flourishing relationships with Jesus. We don't want you to just be a Christian. We want you to have a flourishing relationship with Jesus. And as we've kind of looked at this, what we realize is that for most people, most people in America would say, I'm a Christian. In fact, uh, three weeks ago, we rattled off the stats, right? 76% of Americans would say, I'm a Christian. 76%. That's a huge number. That's a huge number that would say, I'm a Christian. But as you begin to ask more questions that kind of pull back the layers on the person's faith. What you find is, is that when you, when you say, okay, are you, are you actually practicing the way of Jesus? Are you actually doing the things that Jesus taught us to do? Are you actually living the life that he has called us to live? That number shrinks quickly to 8%. 8% of Americans are actually following Jesus. 8% of Americans are actually following Jesus. And we said, man, I don't want you to just be a Christian. I want you to follow Jesus. I want you to have a flourishing relationship with him. Jesus says that he came to give life and give it abundantly, right? He is the source of life. In him was life and the life was the light of men, right? He's the source of it. He's the source of life, right? And so Christians should be filled with this life. We should be the most contented, most happy, most delighted people on planet earth. This is not a superficial thing, right? This does not mean that we are free of poverty. This does not mean that we are free of trouble. This does not mean that we are free of suffering, right? It just means that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of our poverty, in the midst of our trouble, right, we have the fullness of Christ, the fullness of Christ, full comfort, full joy, full satisfaction in him, right? This, this should be the mark of every follower of Jesus, and yet it is not. It is not. It's not true, right? Or at least of every Christian, right? And I said this last week. I'm going to say it again. So I said the primary reason we don't experience the flourishing that Jesus offers us, the primary reason is that though we say we are Christians, we're not really disciples of Jesus, Though we say we're Christians, we're not really disciples of Jesus. Jesus calls us to, to come and follow him, to take up our cross and to, to, to emulate our lives after him, to follow him as his disciples. And for many of us, though we say we're Christians, we've never actually done that. I said it last week. I said it this way. I said many of us have stepped into Christianity. We've stepped into the church, but we've never actually stepped into Jesus. And so I want to unpack that a little bit farther uh, this morning and kind of take it to the, to, the next, to the next level. Last week I said that there was a, we talked about the, the schools of, of uh, first century Israel, right? For those of you who are here, right? And kind of the, the upper echelon, the elite of the elites, the, the, the summa cum laude, those who would go on to get their PhDs, right? We're called the, the Talmudim, right? The Talmudim, this is where we get the word disciple. They would have the opportunity, if 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 allowed, they would have the opportunity to, to come under an, an apprenticeship with a rabbi. Rabbis were, were the most kind of revered, most famous, mo most uh, like unbelievably popular men of the day. 
Everybody followed them wherever they went. When they came into town, every, like everything shut down and they would come to see the rabbi. And the Talmudim were those who would get to be front and center, those who would, who would walk with them. And there was an ancient Hebraic blessing. I talked about this last week. And the ancient Hebraic blessing for the Talmudim was this. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. May, may you walk so closely to your rabbi that the dust that is kicked up from his feet would cover you at the end of the day. The job of the Talmudim is to emulate the rabbi in every single way, to, to watch how he eats, to watch how he sleeps, to watch how he studies the word and how he interprets and unpacks the word, right? To, to emulate him in every way. That's the goal of the Talmudim is to become like the rabbi in every single way. And so this morning... I want to talk about this a little bit further, right? This idea that if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you must be, you must of necessity, you must be with Jesus. There is no, there's no other way around it, okay? There's no way around this. You cannot possibly experience the life that Jesus has on offer if you are not with the one who is the source of all life, okay? If you think you can, you're fooling yourself, okay? And Many, many of us are, right? 76% of us are, okay? We're fooling ourselves into thinking that, man, I can, I, can, I can have all that Jesus offers without actually following Jesus. It does not work. And we know it doesn't work because many people who say they're Christians, their lives are marked by weariness and anxiety, kind of a low-grade depression um, and anxiousness a feeling of inadequacy, right? This is what marks so many lives of people who say, I'm a Christian. But those things do not mark the lives of followers of Jesus, okay? There is a difference. And that's what I want to pack for us this morning. Jesus says it this way in John 15. He says, abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus explicitly says, if you want to have the fruit that I offer you, you must abide in me. You must become nearer to me than anything else in this world. And apart from me, you will have none of that. Right, he says you can do nothing. Now, he doesn't mean literally you can't do anything, right? Well, you know lots of people who aren't abiding in Jesus, don't even believe in Jesus, right? And they, they still have a job and a family and a life, and they can still fix broken, they can do things, right? They can, they can do stuff, but they cannot tap into the life that Jesus offers them in any way, shape, or form. It is impossible for them to experience it on any level because they're not in the source of that life. We must become nearer to Jesus than anything else. This morning we're going to look at a story of two women. Two women who are both in the very same room with Jesus. Two women who are in the same room with Jesus. One of them experiences this life that Jesus has offered. She experiences rest. She experiences fullness. She experiences delight and joy and just fullness of life. And the other one, her life is, she experiences, in the, in the room with Jesus, she experiences anxiety and trouble and frustration, feelings of inadequacy, feelings of, of, of anger and frustration, right? While in the room with Jesus, two women, in the same room with Jesus, two very different experiences. 
Though they are in the very same room, only one of them, only one of them is actually with Jesus. So our story picks up this morning in Luke 10. And we're going to pick it up in Luke 10, verse 38. Verse 38. We're going to find out what the difference is between these two women. Here's how Luke writes this. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care my sister has left me alone to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, if you are anxious, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. All right, let's unpack this text together. The first thing we see is uh, th- they, right, as they, as they went on their way. They, um, now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. Who is they? Who is, who is the they that Luke is describing here in Luke 10, right? So you got to zoom out a little bit, right? Who, who, who is the main focus of Luke 10? What was happening in Luke 10, right? If you, if you zoom out, you go to the beginning of it, right? Jesus sends out the 70 disciples, right? These 72 disciples. He sends them out into all these towns and villages and groups of two, right? And then they return. They return to Jesus, okay? Um, and we see this sending out. And we see this returning, right? They, they come back. And like, he was amazing, right? We cast out demons. We healed the sick. Like, all of these things happen. Jesus, like, says, I saw Satan fall like lightning, right? But then he's like, but do not rejoice in any of these things. But rejoice that your name is written in heaven, right? They sends out the 72. The 72 come back. And so when it says they, right, we, we think, oh, it's like Jesus and his 12 disciples. No, no, there's at least 72 men with Jesus, at least 72, plus all the other people who are just following him, right? Because he's, he's the most famous rabbi who's ever lived, right? He's got a crowd following him all of the time. They roll into this village, and everybody's going to come out of their homes. Everybody's going to come to see because the rabbi has come to town. Not just any rabbi, the rabbi. And Martha, bless her heart, welcomes him in. Martha somehow has, she has, she has a, a previous relationship with Jesus. She knows Jesus and Jesus knows her. She says, come, come on in. She calls him Lord. Martha knows who he is. She welcomes him into her house. Now, we think about this, and so often in our mind, we picture like Jesus and his 12 disciples sitting in Martha's house. No, no, no. Jesus, 72 men, plus his 12 disciples, plus whoever else can cram in there. And I'm telling you what, a lot of people can cram into a house, Okay. In first century Israel, a lot of people could cram into a house, okay? Uh, now, her house is way smaller than your house, but it fits more people than your house. You say, how is that possible? Trust, that's possible. Uh, if you've ever gone with us here at Flourishing Grace, we have a partnership in India, and uh, we take a team every year. We didn't go last year because of, of COVID. Um, we're, we're kind of monitoring this year. We'll see, we'll see what happens. But we take a team to India every single year. We, we partner with these local church plants in, in India, um, and they gather in a space um, Sometimes smaller than, uh, than our stage, May, maybe about the size of our stage, okay? Um, and th- they'll pack 150 in there, 150, 150 people in, in this place. Dirt floor, no AC, right? No AC. They got some electricity wired up through there, but don't touch it. Careful, all right? Exposed wires. Um, 150 people in there, um, and it's hot. And it, I mean, India, they don't really believe in 
deodorant uh, or bathing for that matter. Um, it's, it's hot and it's smelly. And you think, like here people, if I go like over, if we go like over an hour in our gathering, people are like, oh man, I got things to do. Dude, they're in there for like an, two hours, two and a half hours, right? Just singing and praising. There's like three sermons, right? Like, dude, they could pack a lot of people in a room, okay? In first century Israel, they could pack a lot of people in a room, a lot of people. And they cram into this house and Martha's just like hospitality, queen man she is just whipping up the food she's getting it out there uh, she's doing all of this work to serve all of these men and these women who are in her house filling the space as jesus sits and teaches she's just busy 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 just doing just doing it all it's amazing what martha is doing it says in verse 40 but martha was distracted with much serving you're darn right she was she's busting her hump man she got 70 plus people in her house she's trying to care for them all She's working hard, not, not to mention the most famous rabbi of all time. She, she, wants, she wants to impress. She's working hard. And during all of this, it says that Mary is sitting at the Lord's feet and listening to his teaching. She's at the Lord's feet listening to his teaching. Ma- Mary, Mary has front row to the most famous rabbi of all time. Imagine that for a moment, right? I, I, I tried to unpack it last week a little bit, how unbelievably popular these rabbis were. There was nothing like it. There, there was nothing like it. Uh, imagine the most famous person, kind of your hero. Maybe it's a famous musician, uh, a famous uh, sports star, a famous athlete, uh, a famous movie star, like comes to your house and brings their friends like, imagine that, and you get to sit front row. Like, my, my, my claim to fame, I played apples to apples with Alanis Morissette one time. Christmas Eve, she came over for Christmas Eve. No big deal. She came over for Christmas Eve. We played apples to apples for a little bit. Like, imagine sitting at the table with the greatest rabbi of all time, getting to sit right across, sit at their feet. Sit at their feet. Mary is experiencing the fullness of rest, the fullness of joy, Fullness of delight. She, she's just soaking up the moment. She's in it. Martha's distracted with much serving. So here it is, ready? So Martha is serving Jesus in a big way. She's serving Jesus. But Mary, Mary is with Jesus. This is the difference between the two women. If you want to know the difference between Mary and Martha, it's this. Martha is seeking to serve Jesus in a big way. Mary is with Jesus. Now, there's an exchange that uh, takes place between Martha and Jesus. Martha says to Jesus, she says, Lord, she calls him Lord. She knows who he is. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Don't you care that she, my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. Tell her to help me. Right? Now, it's interesting, it's fascinating that she goes to Jesus, not her sister. She didn't say, I need, some, I need a hand. Can you come, come, come help me? Right? She doesn't say that. She doesn't do that, right? She says to Jesus, Lord, don't you care that I'm serving alone? Like, she's ticked at Jesus. And she's ticked at her sister. She's ticked at the whole situation. Don't you care that I'm serving alone? Right? Tell her to come help me. This is a very public exchange. She's not whispering this in his ear, okay? Luke isn't in the room, right? Luke is getting this through secondhand accounts. So he's getting this from somebody else who was in the room and saw this transpire, okay? And so, so this is something like she... The room is so crowded, she can't even get to the front of the room. She's like, Lord, don't you care that I'm serving alone? And the question she's really asking is, 
don't you care about me? This is the assumption that she's making, that Jesus does not care about her because Jesus isn't doing anything to help her. And I wonder for how many of us in the room have we've kind of made the same assumption where we've maybe prayed the prayer or had the thought, God, I do all of these things for you. I serve you. I, I give money to the church. I attend church. I, I, I volunteer at church. I, I do all these things for you. I'm involved in my community. I'm doing all these good things. I'm doing all these right things. I'm doing all the things you want me to do. Don't you care? Where are you? Don't you care? Why does my life not look like that person's life? Why don't I have the things that this person has? Why don't I have what my neighbors have or what my friends have? Don't you care? Look at all, I do so much more than they do. This is the heart of Martha. You see, Martha is doing a good thing, right? This hospitality, is, it's a good thing. Hospitality is a, is a commandment within Scripture that all Christians should be hospitable to all people, especially those who are not Christians, who are not followers of Jesus. We should be extra hospitable to them. It's, it's, a, it's a spiritual gift, hospitality, hospi, hosp, whatever, hospitality, that's the word. Hospitality, it's a spiritual gift, right? We are to be a hospitable people, right? The Spirit lavishes us with the gift of hospitality, a, the, a supernatural ability to care for others. And Martha is practicing this. She's putting it into practice. This is a good thing. But I think her heart, her heart is what is out of place. It's how she views it. This is how the, where the problem lies. If I do more for God, God will do more for me. Or, or worse, if I do more for God, God will love me. If I do more for Jesus, Jesus will love me more. But this is not how our God responds. Our service is not what our God delights in. Scripture is clear on this again and again and again and again. Isaiah 1 verse 11 puts it this way. It says, God says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? What is it to me? Like, what is, what is that to me? Right? Nothing. What is it to me? Says the Lord, I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beast. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. God's saying, listen, I created the sacrificial system and you've jacked it up. You think you can awaken me. You think that you can, you can stimulate me to move. You think you can, like all the other gods of the world, you think that you can get me to do stuff by, by that's, that is not it. You've taken what I've designed for your good and you've turned it into just whatever what the rest of the culture does, right? In, in the ancient world, right, all of the cultures had these false gods and they thought that they could awaken their gods and they could stimulate their gods by creating sacrifices, right? Whether that's the sacrifice of an animal, whether it's some sexual act on the altar, or whether it's legitimately a, a human sacrifice, right? Worst case scenario, right? That, that if they could just get their God's attention, right, then, then God would actually do something nice for them. Like maybe if you could like arouse him, wake him up a little bit, he would like make it rain on your crops or give you some fertility or, or whatever it may be, right? He would help you with whatever disease or ailment it is, right? You just gotta, you gotta wake him up. God says, what? What is this to me? I'm like, no, no. It's not how I am. It's not how I work. It's not, you, can't, you can't buy me. The psalmist knows this. The psalmist, more than anyone, knows the importance of intimacy with God. And the psalmist writes it this way in Psalm 50, verse 7. This is a psalm of Asaph. It says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. 
not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. Like you're doing it a lot. That's what you're saying. But I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. God says, listen, are you trying to buy me with what's mine? Like, how dumb are you? Like, you're, you're giving me what's already mine. Like, I already own it all. You think, you think you're, you're like, you think that in, in sacrificing this thing to me, that, that, that I, that suddenly you're, you're giving this thing to me. It's already mine. It's like if you, if you came to my house and you had a box and you're like, dude, I gave you, I, want, I got you this present, I want you to have it. And you give it to me and I open it up and it's like, my shoes. Um, how'd, you, how'd you get my shoes? No, 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 this is, this is my gift for you. It's like, no, 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 that's, those, are, those are my shoes. Like that, those, are, those are mine. You're like, no, 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 yeah, 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 but, but now what are you going to give to me? I'm not going to give you anything. You're just giving me my shoes. Like it doesn't make any sense. Right? It's crazy. God's like, what do you, what do you think? I know, all, I know every single bird. I know the individual bird. I know them. They're mine. What do you, you think? If you give me a bird, I'm going to like you more? No. Paul reiterates this in Romans 11. He says, who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Who's given him a gift that he's like, oh, I've never seen that before. What? I've always wanted one of those. Like, no one ever has done that for God. Like, no one has ever given him a gift that now God owes them something, right? And some of you say, man, well, I'll give God my life, please. If God wanted your life, he would reveal to you an inch of his glory, and you would be ruined for anything less than to give him the rest of your days. It's already his. All of it is his. God is not interested in your service or your sacrifice. He cannot be bought. But this is the trap that Martha falls into, right? If I just do more for him, right, he'll love me more. He'll like me more, right? I can awaken his affections for me. No, you can't. He cannot possibly love you more than he already does. He loves you with an infinite love. But perhaps many of us have also fallen into this trap. See, all of the other religions of the world, except for biblical Christianity, all of the other religions of the world say, come and serve me. Look at all of the other leaders of any other religion who have ever lived. Look at any of them other than Jesus, okay? Any religious leader of any religion outside of biblical Christianity, and I would even go so, fast, fat, so far as to say Protestant biblical Christianity, Outside of that, they say, come and serve. Give me your money. Give me your time. Give me your service. Give, give me your land. Give me your house. Give me your wife. Give me your stuff. Give me all of your things, right? Come and serve me. But Jesus says, no, I will come to serve, not to be served. I will give you my glory. I will give you my life. I will die in your place. I will live the life of radical hospitality that you could not live. And I will die in a death in your place that you could not die. I will die for your sin. I will become the sacrifice that you could not make. You're trying to awaken God with all these animal sacrifices. No, I will become the sacrifice that you cannot make. 
I will die in your place. I will satisfy the wrath of God with my righteous death. God himself takes our place. He dies on the cross. Why? So that we might come in with him to welcome us into his house. This is radical hospitality. I will cleanse you. I will wash you white as wool, pure as snow. I will wash your feet so that you can come and sit at my table, so you can come join me, so that I can show you what real hospitality actually is. Jesus doesn't say, come and, come and serve me. Come and make me food. Come and do all these things for me. Come and, no, no. He says, let me, let me give it all to you so that you can come and sit at my table and be with me in my house for all eternity. This is the good news. That we have a king who is actually a king. But the king says, I want you to come sit at my table. Come sit with me. So here it is. Here's what he says to Martha. Jesus, the Lord, answered her. Martha, Martha. Now, so often when we read that, we read that kind of in this like uh, impatient language. Like, Martha, Martha. Like, come, like, right? It's more, it's, this, is the, this is the love of Christ on display for Martha. She's, she's, she's yelling at him from the other side of the room. He looks at her. He's like, Mar- Martha. And she's still frantic and anxious and frustrated. And he looks her right in the eyes. Martha. This is the love of Christ on display for this woman. You are anxious and troubled about many things. Not, not just this, not just, not just this moment, not just these men in your house, not just this, not just the fact that your sister's not serving. There is, there is deeper things going on here in your life, Martha. There, there's a lack of identity. You're trying to, you're trying to get people to, to see you as somebody who's, who can serve and who's, who's able and capable of doing all of these things. You're anxious and troubled about that. You're frustrated because people aren't giving you appreciation. You're anxious and troubled about that. There's so many things going on underneath the surface of your heart, Martha. So many things. So, so many feelings of in, inadequacy and disappointment and frustration. You are weary. But one thing is necessary. One thing is necessary. You see, Martha's serving appears to flow out of a gracious heart. But Jesus discerned differently. He saw that Martha was serving out of anxiety, not grace. She's doing all these things, and it looks like it's hospitality. It looks like what we're commanded to do. But her heart shifts it. It's, it's, it's anxiety. I want people to like me. I want people to be happy with me. I want people to love me. Not grace. You see, for the Christian, right? The, the, the Christian, it's different. It's fascinating to explore this because it's so subtle. In our culture, those who have the appearance of hospitality, those who have the appearance of being really good at loving people, often, often are serving out of anxiety, not grace. But those who love Jesus are captured by his grace and are compelled to give up their lives and to consider others greater than themselves. Now, not, because, not because they want that person to, to like them more, not because they want that person because, to love them more, but because they've experienced the most radical form of hospitality ever. Jesus has modeled this hospitality for them. They say, man, I want to be just like Jesus. So I want to consider others better than myself. I want to seek to help everyone and include everyone and simply be hospitable because he was hospitable to me. 
Martha serves out of an anxious heart so that Jesus would care for her more. And Martha misses the one necessary thing, to be near Christ. If you want freedom from anxiety, friends, this is it. This is it. Sit at his feet. Absorb his teaching. Though she was in the very same room as the Savior of the world, she was not with him. She wasn't with him. So many of us have kind of thought in our minds, man, if I could just see Jesus, and then I would know, and then I'd believe, and I'd have the, the life that he doesn't know. She's in the very same room with him, but she was not with him. Jesus goes on in the last sentence to say this. He says, Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. What does this mean? Every day we have, we, have, we have the opportunity to choose. Mary chooses this. She chooses the good portion. Where will you sit in the room? Where will you sit in the room? Will you sit at his feet? Will you sit in the back and be distracted? Will you be busy with all these other things, right? We spend the bulk of our time, right, busy with the fragile things of life. Right? This is where we spend the bulk of our time, busy with the fragile things of life. We talk about this all the time here at Flourishing Grace, but this is where we spend our time, constantly busy with our, with our work, constantly busy with our family, constantly busy with our kids, constantly busy with our hobbies, constantly busy with our friends. Right? These are the fragile things of life, man. Constantly busy in our perfect preferred future. If you've been around Flourishing Grace, you've heard me talk about this a lot. This idea of like we always dream in the perfect preferred future. When you think about when that sweetness is going to come, when you think about when the good life is going to happen, it's always out there in the distance. you got to get there, right? Once you get to this place in your retirement account, then sweetness, right? Well, once you, once you find Mr. Wright, Mrs. Wright, then that's the good life. That's when it's going to happen. That's when everything's going to be right and good. Like, it's out there in the distance. When I graduate from high school, when I graduate from college, when I get a job, right, it's out there in the distance when I can buy this house, when I can have this car, right? Then it's the, when, I can, when I can have kids, when I can get my kids into the house, right? It's always in the future. It's always out there in the distance. These are the fragile things of life that we concern ourselves with. All it takes is one phone call, the doctor calls, and your kid's got a disease, and there's no cure for that. It's over. Your boss calls you in on a Friday and says, hey, don't come in on Monday. It's over. The market tanks in all of your retirement, all of those hopes and dreams are snuffed out in an instant. It's over. These are the fragile things of life. They can all be taken away. In an instant, in a moment, they can all be taken away. But there's one thing that Jesus says that can't be taken away. The one thing that Mary has that cannot be taken away. This is what she's chosen, the good portion. She's chosen to invest her time in the one thing that cannot be taken away from her. The one thing that will endure. He will never leave us or forsake us. Hebrews 13, 5. He'll never leave us or forsake us. Nothing can separate us from him. Romans 8, 38 and 39. He dwells in us. Colossians 1, 27. He is a near and present help, Psalm 40. For so many of us, we are too busy, too distracted, too hurried, and too full to find the thing we are hungry for. This has been a constant theme over the past few weeks as we've talked through this, right? I said uh, two weeks ago, I said, man, we're so, we're so busy living that we never actually find life Last week I said, uh, we're, we're, we're too busy consuming and eating all the things that culture tells us are going to fill us, that, and we never actually find the thing that we're hungry for. 
It was constantly moving, constantly moving, constantly moving. We never actually find the life that Jesus offers us. There's this famous interaction between a guy named John Ortberg, who's a pastor, uh, a well-known pastor. He's written a bunch of books, and he was a pastor at Willow Creek um, out in South Barrington, uh, Illinois. And Willow Creek in its heyday was 30,000 people on a Sunday. 30,000 people on a Sunday morning packing that place out. Uh, John Ortberg was a busy man, constantly trying to meet the needs of all of these people, okay? And his mentor was a guy by the name of Dallas Willard. And Dallas Willard was a, is a, was a, a professor um, and a kind of philosopher. And uh, he's passed away now. But in, in a phone conversation, Ortberg recalls this moment where he, he's, he's talking about all these things that are going on at Willow Creek and all these things that are doing, he's, he's doing in his ministry and all these important things. And he's, a, he's an important guy and blah, 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 blah. And, but he says, man, I'm just, I'm just so, I, I can't figure out, like, my, 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 I'm just not experiencing the life that Jesus offers. So just, I don't experience the things that Jesus talks about. What do I need to do in order to experience the, the spiritual life that I want to experience? And there's a long pause on the other end of the phone. And Dallas Willard says, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Orberg says, that's good. And he writes it down. And he says, okay. And what, and what else? What do I do next? And there's a long pause on the other end of the line. And there's an interview with Ortberg where he tells a story. And he says, man, I was, I was annoyed with how long the pause was. Like, that's how hurried he is, right? That's how, that's how busy he is. This is a long-distance call. I got things to do. And this guy's just sitting in silence on the phone. Like, we got to go, man. Finally, Willard says, there's nothing else. You must ruthlessly Eliminate hurry from your life. We're too busy. We're moving so fast that we're moving past Jesus. We filled our lives so much with so many things that we're moving past him. It's not not that these things are pulling us away from Jesus. They're pushing us past him. If if you're not with him, you will never experience him. This is just just simple logic. If you're never with your wife, you'll never experience your wife. If you're never with your kids, you'll never experience your kids. If you're never with Jesus, you're not going to experience the life that he has on offer for you. You can't. It's not possible. We must daily abide. If we're going to be disciples of Jesus, we must daily choose to sit at his feet. Choose to be covered in his dust. You will never emulate Jesus if you're constantly moving through life at an anxious pace. And so what anxieties are driving you past Jesus? What hobbies, what activities, what commitments? As Augustine says, our hearts are restless until they rest in him, in you. What is causing the unrest in your life? What are the things that you need to ruthlessly eliminate? What are the things in your life that need to be completely reordered and completely ridded of in order for you to have time for, for, the one, for the one necessary thing, as Jesus says, the good portion? What do you need to do? For those of you who, who are saying, I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a Christian and I want to follow Jesus. I want to experience the life that he has on offer. I just don't know why I'm not. I'm just anxious and I'm tired and I'm busy. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. 
Mary sits at the feet of Jesus, and in that moment, there is no anxiety, there is no hurry, there is no, there's no perfect preferred future. She's living in it right there, the fullness of everything she'd ever want. She is satisfied. She's satisfied at the feet of Jesus. And there is no other place, there is no other place where you will find satisfaction than the feet of Jesus. It's not out in the distance in the future. You're not going to find it, buy it, or acquire it. It's only at the feet of Jesus. And so if you want, if you want to experience it, you must learn to sit. I want to give you a word of warning. Uh, about a year and a half ago, I, I became obsessed with this idea of uh, ruthlessly eliminating her. It was the first time I'd ever heard that story of uh, Ortberg and Willard. I, I'd read a bunch of books about how uh, technology is like destroying our minds and our kids and our marriages and culture and our phones are killing us and eating our brains. And I'd re- I read all these things. It's crazy. And I got all into it. And I was like, okay, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And I cut out uh, all sports and television, e- even some like relationships. And I was like, man, this is just not valuable. This is just not valuable. Not, I'm not being valuable to them. They're not being valuable to me. Like, this is a waste of time. I'm wasting their time. They're wasting my time. I've removed relationships and hobbies and all kinds of this. I removed it all, completely reorganized my days, got super serious about these, these blocks of time that I was going to do all these things in and just clear everything out. I set up all these, like, protections on my phone so that when I pull up my phone, I don't see any of the stuff that's on there. Just, just, my, just a phone, right? Call people, right? That's what it is. Nothing else. I don't, I don't want any of that. And then slowly but surely, everything begins to creep back in because I didn't fill all of the space with the one necessary thing. Just being vulnerable with you. But I didn't do it. I failed. I did all the hard work. I did all the hard work. But I failed in the one necessary thing. It just all creeps back in. It fills back in with all, of the, all the other junk of life. It just it's gonna, it gets sucked right back in there. And so my word of warning to you this morning is this. For those of you in the room who would say, man, I want this. And you're already thinking of all the things. You're like, I'm going to clear this out. I'm going to get organized. I'm going to just declutter my life. It's going to be amazing. If you don't fill all of the open space that you create with the one necessary thing, it's all for nothing. It's all for nothing. If you want to follow Jesus and experience the life that he has on offer, you must be with him. There is no other way. There's no other way. You must be with him. You must plan your time around him. Plan your summer around him. Our summers are filling up so fast with all these activities and trips and vacations and sports stuff with kids and blah, blah, blah. We must plan our summer around Jesus. Carve out time for meditation. Carve out time for for silence and solitude, carve out time for Bible intake every single day. This must be planned into the rhythms of our days, our weeks, our months, and even our years. We must be with him. And so as you go this morning, I want to encourage you to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. But as you ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life, as you, as you unpack all these things and rid your life of all this clutter, you must replace it with the one necessary thing or it'll just get cluttered back up again. There's no way around it, friends. Let me pray for you. Jesus, come before you this morning. I pray that we would see these two women who both, who both genuinely, who loved you. 
One wanted to serve you, but in her insecurity, served out of the wrong heart. And the other one who chose the good portion, who actually found her rest in you and sat at your feet. pray that you would help us to choose the good portion. That even today, that we would find a way to get quiet, whatever we got to do, that we find a way to spend an hour or more sitting at your feet, examining our own lives, examining every hour and every minute of our day, and what's being wasted. And that we begin to do the work of decluttering ruthlessly, ruthlessly eliminating the hurry in our lives. And then we'd schedule our lives around you. That we'd be covered in the dust of our rabbi. That our lives would be filled with the one necessary thing. That we'd sit at your feet. And that we'd begin to experience the life that you have on offer for us. That we'd begin to walk the path of flourishing with you. Praise in your sweet name. In the name of Jesus. Amen.